and welcome to our second episode of Wildfire Matters, the podcast that covers all aspects of wildland fire management for the Bureau of Land Management, or BLM. We get behind the scenes to talk with people who dedicate their lives to the profession to manage and protect our public lands. My name is Carrie Bilbao, your host. I am a public affairs specialist for the BLM at the National Interagency Fire Center, or NIFSI, located, located in Boise, Idaho. Along with my fellow colleague and co-host, Jennifer Miss Livy, we are talking today with Jolie Poulet, Division Chief for Fire Planning and Fuels Management for the BLM Fire. Welcome, Jolie. Great. Thank you. Welcome, Jolie. Glad you're joining us today. It is really nice to be here. Jolie provides leadership for BLM's national fire programs such as fuels management, fire ecology, wildfire reporting and data management, fire planning, and community assistance. Jolie has worked in several federal fire and resource management positions for both BLM and U.S. Forest Service in five states in the past 26 years, from wildland fire crews to managing essential national programs. So first off, Jolie, tell us a little bit about yourself, your career. Like, how did you get started in fire? Well, I grew up in New Orleans, Louisiana, and um, I... uh, didn't really think that much about wildland fire management <laughs> until uh, I moved to Colorado. I went to graduate school at Colorado State University, and I started, I was supposed to go uh, to CSU to utilize a degree in geography and do GIS, which was all um, DOS, mainframe <laughs> GIS, so it doesn't look anything like, the G- yeah, it doesn't yeah. look anything like GIS today. Um, But it was a really, it was 1994, and it was a really severe fire year in Colorado, and I was working in the natural resource uh, program at Colorado State, and they needed some help doing fire effects modeling, and I started um, helping with some fire research at that point, and then got uh, my red card the following year, went out uh, on uh, some type 2 crew assignments as an AD, and then um, a few years after that, got a job with the Forest Service, and... um, just have, have been working in fire and natural resource management since then. Wow. That's kind of a roundabout way to get to fire, but yeah. Yeah. It shows that there's different ways to <laughs> to work in the fire program. Yeah. And the, how I got hired was actually a little bit interesting is that um, kind of similar to today, there were struggles with getting the uh, professional qualifications for wildland firefighters and wildland fire personnel. And so the Forest Service had a program where they were targeting people already in school that obviously would be able to qualify for a professional job and then teach them how to be a firefighter rather than the other way around of taking a firefighter and helping them get a degree. So I started as a, as a part of that initiative, taking um, students that were getting advanced degrees in wildland fire and teaching them how to be a firefighter. So I got some really neat exposure early in my career to do um, cruise, hell attack, um, engines, and uh, so I had a lot of a lot of great early uh, career experiences doing a, a wide variety of things. Yeah, sounds very well rounded. Yeah, that's a good picture and a snapshot of wildland fire management for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so that led you to uh, fire planning and fuels management <laughs> at NIFSI. <How> yes, <laughs> tell us a bit more about that. <laughs> okay, how I got there. Um, so when I was working for the Forest Service in Colorado. Um, it was also a time, even though they were still trying to get more women into wildland fire management and more, prof- more folks with professional um, degrees and college degrees into fire management, 
It was also a time of budget cuts and budget shortages. And um, at one point, uh, the Forest Service said, well, we can't, we can't. And I was there on like a student um, program, so I didn't have a permanent job. And they said, well, I think we're going to have to, um, you know, terminate my position. And I was like, whoa, like, I need to work. <laughs> so um, I started looking for jobs and found a job with the Bureau of Land Management in Lakeview, Oregon. And that was my first BLM job. Um, and uh, so it worked out great because I was a fire ecologist there and um, and was able to continue getting wildland fire experience there as well as kind of helping with land use plans and uh, some science and research um, work and just get to start to to um, apply everything that I'd learned in school and through my trainee um, experience with the Forest Service into kind of my first BLM job. That's great. So um, people probably wonder sometimes what is actually fire planning? I mean, are we planning for fires and, and, and fuels management too? Maybe, maybe explain that a little bit. Yeah, so fire planning is, I, I kind of think of it as all the things that you do before the fire starts, essentially. So we, um, as fire planners, you kind of identify the landscape that you're working in, uh, think about the fire risk and fire probability, think about the values that could be impacted by a wildfire, and then start to kind of pre-plan some fire management decisions, like finding areas where maybe um, you need to do some kind of treatment, some vegetation treatment to protect a community or protect a critical natural resource. Um, you can also, through this fire planning piece, uh, identify areas where natural fire can play a role in the landscape. Um, and then you can also uh, identify those areas where if a fire got started, it would have some really critical um, impacts and you don't want to let fires, you, you need to be really ag uh, aggressive with fire suppression and initial attack. So that's kind of fire planning in a nutshell. Um, and it's you know gone through a lot of iterations over the years about um, the requirements for fire planning. Um, the federal fire policy requires the BLM and all federal fire agencies to have fire plans that cover all acres of burnable vegetation. So um, we help uh, states kind of develop their fire management plans and develop policies to uh, for like what things to include in a fire management plan. Okay. So pre-planning before the big fires, and that, that includes all these things like fire ecology, reporting, data management. And how does community assistance come into play there? Well, community assistance is a great program that the BLM has been working in for a very long time. And it is a way that, um, obviously, fires don't know jurisdictional boundaries. They, you know, they don't say, well, this is private land. I better stop here. Um, so we work with communities that are adjacent to BLM land to help identify projects to mitigate that wildfire risk to that really high value um, resource in terms of private property, people's lives, people's livelihoods, um, people's investments. Um, so where we see there's a high wildfire risk adjacent to a community where there's BLM land, we work with that community to reduce the fire risk on BLM land, as well as helping the community reduce the fire risk on their adjacent land. And we do things like um, home um, home assessments for uh, things that people can do to reduce the fire risk around their home, as well as things like fuel breaks to um, 
remove that uh, fire transmission likelihood across the two from BLM land to a community and vice versa from community to BLM land. And we do lots of different kinds of activities with um, working with communities and partners to kind of help reduce that fire risk in that really high value area. Okay. And so is there like, how does it work funding wise? Like, is there funding available for communities? I would say yes, but, uh, or and, um, the Forest Service is probably the pioneer in this uh, part of uh, the portfolio of fire management work. Um, the Forest Service has a whole dedicated program through state and private forestry, basically that helps support uh, wildfire risk reduction on non-Forest Service lands. So with BLM, the, we still work with communities and still fund some of that work, but it comes out of our normal wildland fire appropriations. So there's got to be a BLM nexus to the work, and okay. it doesn't have to be, um, there's not really a requirement for matching funds or any of that. It just kind of has to be a good partnership between the community and the BLM, a local BLM office to say, yeah, this is a priority and we want to get this work done. Okay. And this work is getting more important because, as Grant pointed out, that we're having more people move into this wildland urban interface. Right. And so this, this, uh, the scale and scope and need of this work is, is certainly increasing. Yeah, and that kind of leads to that next question is why is fuels management so important? Yeah, and, you know, it's, it's important for in this wildland urban interface um, part of the, of the landscape, but it's also really important for just – Good wild, I mean, just um, good wildland management. Um, we have a lot of critical landscapes out there that um, are dependent on fire, and we have some ecological conditions out on the landscape, like with fire and cheatgrass, that are causing fires to be way more frequent than they would be normally. And in those cases, we are kind of limited in the kinds of fuel treatments that we can do to be effective. And for instance, Prescribed fire is not really uh, a tool uh, in these cheatgrass or annual grass-infested uh, rangelands. Um, BLM manages quite a bit of the sage-grouse habitat and sagebrush rangelands in the United States. And that, like, it's, the sagebrush rangelands are home to 350 different species. It's a real, I mean, it seems sort of like, um, and you're driving past it, like maybe there's not much in there, but it's a really critical ecosystem. And just due to various practices and the, re and the introduction of cheatgrass has really taken um, a hold in these landscapes. And when those, and the cheatgrass is really flammable. And so when those landscapes burn, you can lose the entire native ecosystem. And then you're kind of in this uh, do loop of this fire cheatgrass cycle and that's really becoming, um, we're really losing a lot of critical native habitat that way. And so that's also some of the fuel treatments that we do are to kind of help restore and protect those areas. Oh, sure. And um, how does it, how do fuels management affect just wildfire management in general then? That's part of it. Yeah, protecting yeah. Protecting ecosystems. But. Mm -hmm. but also we're, you know, we implement fuels management, we, which is really just, it's a fancy word for vegetation management. Right. Um, <laughs> And it's really for the purpose of reducing wildfire risk. It's that then it's but that vegetation management then turns into fuels management. Um, but yeah, we um, we BLM implements a lot of fuel treatments that are aimed to help uh, promote firefighter effectiveness and uh, have a have a safe response to wildland fire. 
And we really are trying to um, reduce the catastrophic impacts of wildfire and help provide that safe and effective wildfire response, knowing that in a lot of BLM landscapes, we really are not trying to, to necessarily manage fire in the landscape. We're really trying to reduce fire because of the changing ecological conditions out there on a lot of BLM landscapes. In some areas, we are monitoring wildfires um, in some in some instances and for some uh, resource objectives. But by and large, the the BLM is is actually probably the the more pressing wildfire problem is really just trying to get a handle on where we've got too much fire in the landscape. Which, and frequency in, yes. these, in these types of ecosystems. Yeah, these yeah. fires are getting really big, much larger than we've ever experienced before. And we're just seeing conditions that we just have never experienced before. Each year, it's like, oh, we didn't know that we could have we could have a fire like this. Right. Um, yeah. And we brought this up in the last one with the Marshall Fire that mm-hmm. kind of shocked everyone the yeah. end of December. Mm-hmm. <laughs> didn't yeah. expect something like that. It takes everyone playing a part to do something to help manage that for sure. So not just the federal government, but also just the public too as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, BLM is a big land manager in the West. And so, you know, BLM is focusing on Western wildfire issues, which are seeing a lot of this increase in, in development and, um, and and BLM tends to manage lower elevation landscapes that are likely to be, you know, we're seeing those are kind of the first ones impacted through climate change. And we are um, trying to figure out, uh, it will end these fires are getting a lot larger. Luckily for BLM, our fires don't last as long typically right. as a forest fire, but um, they can sure do a lot of damage in just a very short amount of time. And then setting up that fire and invasive cycle where the fires just return much more frequently than they used to. Right. So that brings us to um, this new bill or bipartisan infrastructure law. And um, it's been in the news lately, and we're still kind of waiting to see how the fundings are going to be distributed amongst the agency and how that's looking for um, our fire management program, but also hoping to bolster, I guess, our fuels management program. Um, what what can you tell us about that? Like, what what can the public maybe expect to see? Or have you gotten any new news on, on yeah. that lately? Well, it's really uh, exciting. This, like, the bipartisan infrastructure law represents a significant investment in wildfire risk reduction for the BLM, for other federal agencies, um, and it's also going to benefit the public. Uh, most of the programs that would uh, provide funding to the public are not going to be handled out of the BLM, um, but certainly we are part of developing those partnerships and helping identify that risk and possibilities for mitigating that risk on our lands as well as adjacent um, non-federal lands. And so we are, have a lot more resources through the bill to be able to get that work done. And we are looking at a pretty significant increase in the BLM fuels program funding. And it's, it's you know, obviously the big picture is to reduce wildfire impacts, costs, um, and obviously to, to restore some sense of fire resiliency to the West that's really been experiencing a significant increase in wildfires. And I think Bill's going to help us get there. And we've identified some priorities and priority landscapes that we already know we want to be working in. And we're going to continue to to continue to refine and develop new priorities, and we're going to be able to get um, a significant amount of work done with the support uh, with the bill funds. 
So what, what type of projects would that in, entail? Yeah, so the fuels management projects that BLM undertakes are, uh, there's a wide variety depending on the landscape that you're working in. So we've got projects from Alaska to Alabama um, that BLM funds for um, fuels treatment or vegetation treatment to reduce wildfire um, risk. And, you know, you so depending on that landscape, that will kind of dictate the type of vegetation work that's needed. Um, BLM does have lands in the east. It tends to be really small uh, parcels, um, but we do get work done out there, and mostly with partners, uh, like with through the Nature Conservancy or through other federal agencies like Fish and Wildlife Service. So BLM does prescribed fire in the east um, and different other kinds of fuel treatment, a lot to help um, uh, sensitive species like woodpeckers and things like that. Um, and then most of the work that we do, though, is in the West. And a lot of that work, um, we've done a significant amount of fuel break work. And so that's really just taking where you've already got a linear feature and widening it and reducing the vegetation around that linear feature. And then that becomes kind of a control point for wildfires. So um, in a in a less severe uh, fire, hopefully, they, um, the idea is that that, um, that kind of that serves as like a break for wildfire progression and spread. So, uh, but sometimes if the winds are um, really strong and it doesn't, they don't always work 100% of the time. So they're not, they're not really built for worst case scenario. Um, they are built for kind of, um, you know, a bad scenario, but not worst case. And so they can, uh, they don't always, um, they're not always uh, effective in stopping a fire, but when we can use them and get firefighters in there, they are effective um, as they can be used as a good um, fuel, as a, those uh, linear fuel breaks can be used as a point of like uh, attacking the fire or stopping the fire spread and putting resources in there. But then we do other things like seeding um, to help um, reduce the cheatgrass invasion and to restore fire resiliency. We do mowing, we do thinning when we're in uh, areas with trees. Um, and we do we do area we do um, wildland urban interface work. We really are focusing on reducing the vegetation between the BLM lands and the communities. So in some cases, those are also considered a type of fuel break. Um, so we'll definitely try and reduce that risk of wildfire spreading from BLM land into a community and vice versa. So we do a lot of different things. Prescribed fire we also do. Um, and just the conditions have to be right and has to be it's kind of like you know, in the right place at the right time um, for prescribed fire. Yeah, and I know when I was on the district, we did a lot of like fence line burning of tumbleweed buildup. Mm -hmm. That was our prescribed fire. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But it, I mean, it still reduces that risk of when you do have a wildfire because that's very flammable material. And so that would just increase the spread. So if you can get rid of that, also clears up roads and fences. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So little things like that. Yeah. So we, um, yeah, there's different types of prescribed fire. There's broadcast burning is where you want to put fire on a big landscape or on a larger landscape and kind of um, mimic fire's natural role in that landscape. And then sometimes there's like the fire, the prescribed burning that you talked about, you're really targeting um, a, specific, a specific feature. And then sometimes um, like where maybe we've done some thinning and we pile up the the leftover vegetation. Um, so in the winter time, you can go through and burn that. Um, we call it activity fuels, but you can go in and burn that when there's a low risk of that fire spreading. Um, so, but 
you know, it's, it's, it's a whole variety of things depending on the particular landscape, the particular vegetation type, and the type of fire that that area um, receives. Okay. So I know that um, all these things are helping to manage fire. What are the goals of the, of the program then just to, to reduce risk? And <laughs> yeah, I mean, the big picture goals are really to reduce risk uh, unwanted re- to reduce the risk of unwanted wildfire on on the landscape and so blm in the west is a is like i said a pretty big land manager and so yeah that's like the big picture reason that's w- that's why we exist uh, why the programs exist all the work that we do within our um, division of we have about 10 people that we work in our division and really that's the big picture that we're trying to um help solve for the public is really to reduce un- unwanted fire and reduce those um, those risks of unwanted fire on the landscape. So another part of your program that we didn't really talk about or weren't really going to, but, but is like fire trespass and investigation. And I was just thinking about how people can help. Yeah. Um, what, are, what are some of the suggestions you have for how people can help us with fuels management? Yeah, so... You know, it's it's not exactly fuels management, but it's really trying to reduce those human-caused wildfires on the landscape. Um, a large proportion of, depending on the where you are, but about half of BLM fires are human-caused. Um, and having, um, have it, even reducing that by, you know, even just some small percentages can really help in terms of freeing up firefighters to go um, be available to suppress fires in other areas, and it provides... You know, it's kind of a resource sink when you when we have to deal with a human-caused wildfire, and certainly they can be very destructive because um, they're not they're not natural at all. Um, they're started some in times of the year where um, natural fires would not have occurred, and they're often um, you know they cause a, can cause a, quite a few quite a lot of impacts on the landscape. So yeah, reducing the human-caused wildfires is critical, and so. Part of the work that we do is helping educate the public and really trying to develop measures that can reduce that wildfire risk. Things like um, education about um, vehicle use and where where to park vehicles, um, like not on top of dry grass, for example. <laughs> um, and then on dry cheek grass. Exactly. <laughs> cheek grass, dry cheek grass, dry cheek grass is a super flammable fuel. So yeah, it's like those kinds of things. And um, and, and being careful with fireworks. Uh, fireworks have been known to cause, we, in Boise, every year, right. uh, fireworks are known to cause fires. Um, so just being really careful with fireworks, knowing where you can and cannot use fireworks, um, being cognizant of other vehicle things like, well, not not only parking, but like if you're towing a vehicle, you're having making sure that your chains are um, not dragging and um Throwing sparks. Um, I've been involved in some really big wildfires where that's that, or a really big wildfire where that had was the cause, um, and that that sometimes causes several wildfires down the, you know, depending on uh, following the trail of of the sparks. Right. <laughs> yeah, and some of that is the, a bunch of prevention campaigns that happen with BLM too. Like you said, mm-hmm. it's not just community assistance, but everyone has that part of not only hardening their home, but also those um, prevention safety tips when they're out on public lands. Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, it's easy to say, oh, you don't put out your wildfire, I mean, your campfire. Yes, that one's certainly, but it's, 
I think most people know that by now. But they um, don't know quite how to do it. Yeah, yeah maybe, maybe they don't know, quite know how to do it. And then it's some of these other ones, these other causes of wildfires that people maybe aren't thinking about that can really cause some uh, catastrophic wildfires that we're trying to also educate about, not just um, about, you know, keep your uh, campfires, you know, make sure they're cold and out before you leave them. Um, that's important. Um, but some of these other ones, uh, especially around BLM lands, are also really important. And then we're doing things, we're working with departments of transportation to help reduce that risk because we know vehicles are are the are really a, a significant cause of human starts, human wildfire starts. And so we've done some programs where we worked with departments of transportation to reduce the vegetation along the highway. You can see that um, outside of Boise. And that has, we've done some studies and that's really, I mean, it seems simple. You just remove the vegetation along the highway <laughs> and you start fewer sure. fires, but you take fuel away from the fire yeah. triangle. Yeah. <laughs> one, one of those yeah. <laughs> angles. And then it really, it works and yeah. it's, um, it's, it's not it's not super technical, it's very, it's, but it works. And we are seeing um, a reduction in the wildfires that are spreading in that area due to that due to that work. So it, that's a really great partnership. Yeah, and a lot of that comes through investigation of those fires. Yeah, which yeah. I did for many years. Yeah, but also that's part of your program too with um, investigation and and then fire trespass um, to look at maybe cost recovery for some of those negligent neglig- negligently set fires. Yeah, yeah. Fire trespass is um, really, I mean, the big picture we're trying to deal with there is kind of show that there is a risk of of uh, being negligent and, and you could be held liable for the cost of suppression and damages for those fires. Um, and really it's it's trying to educate the public about their, their um carelessness in, in many cases uh, on public lands. And we feel like it's a good deterrent and it's a good, um, it provides kind of a consequence for um, being careless and and a reward for paying attention to kind of how you are um, handling uh, recreation or other kinds, you know, just traveling through public lands um, and just maintaining that awareness. So yeah, we, uh, we supervise, um, we, well, we oversee the fire trespass program for the BLM out of our division and develop some policies and provide guidance to uh, the folks in, in the state offices of, of how to get that done. But that's the reason that we do it is really try and prevent those human-caused fires and to help uh, make sure that, um, like, right-of-way uh, grant holders that um, utilize uh, BLM lands, that they're educated and uh, about their fire risk for their uses that they're permitted and that they uh, have an incentive to be careful and and to um, try and reduce their chances of starting a wildfire based on the, the uses that they've been permitted to do on, on BLM land. The other thing you use for fire investigation is to find out what the trends are, um, to see how many fires have started by dragging chains or mm-hmm. um, exploding targets, things like that, to help do the education. So that's also a trend capturing for invest- investigation, too. So we're not always just going for after people, but we're also just trying to calculate how, you know, how are they starting and how can we help prevent them? Exactly. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's the whole reason that the fire trespass program is there is, is all about that preventing that, uh, those wildfires on, um, from impacting all kinds of resources. Um, and absolutely we, we get a lot of trends data and 
we try and focus certain uh, where, like in Alaska, it's not a lot of vehicle fires, right? <laughs> um, uh, so we try and focus where, where the primary cause, the human um, cause is, and try and focus those kinds of starts with education messages. Yeah, and, and like you said, like the fuel breaks along the, the highways and interstates and things like that where maybe education is not going to really help because somebody's just driving their vehicle and they don't know something just fell off of it right. and started the fire yeah. right. <laughs> and they're long gone. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, so in that case, we know we, ha- we had data that, hey, we have this corridor with a lot of human-caused fires. It's not that hard to of a stretch to realize there um, you know, a lot of these – we know what it is. It's human. It's from vehicles, and so how wh- how else can we mitigate that fire risk? And that was when um, the partnership with the Department of Transportation uh, came up, and um, yeah, it's been a really great uh, success here in Boise. Yeah, that's that. I've seen yeah the, the examples of that and and how that's the outcomes of that, and it has really looked like it, it's worked. So, mm-hmm. so those little things that we find through management and planning and <laughs> yeah and you know there's another big cause of um human caused wildfires are power lines yes and so there's been a lot of work um trying to help reduce the wildfire risk from power lines and um so anyway we've got a lot of science about that and a lot of data about that and the power lines uh, some of the larger companies they keep track of that data you know obviously this is this has been a, a cause of some really significant wildfires in california right. Um, with some pretty high-profile lawsuits and litigation. Um, and BLM is working uh, to help reduce those risks for the power lines that we permit on BLM land with certain kinds of stipulations and things that would reduce the chance of a power line causing a wildfire in, in area, in, on BLM lands. Yeah, and what is what are some things that like homeowners can do that live on um, near public land near BLM lands because I I know what I'm getting to is like there's this kind of the season for open burning Uh (laughs) and that that sometimes can cause fires too so yeah you two know more about this than (laughs) I do so um yeah you both have worked in in doing that work but uh, yeah I mean clearly there's things that people can do around their home um and you know things like rem- clearing vegetation, uh, removing wood piles. You know th- those kinds of things around their home, and obviously being very careful um, with op- with any kind of um, burning on any private on any land. And we know, like a few years ago, that started a pretty significant fire in Utah, for example. Um, was a homeowner um, with a, just kind of a you know a brush pile on their own property and thought you know didn't 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 pay attention to the forecast and um, it got to be a lot windier with sustained winds and that fire got out of control and um, mm-hmm. it burned a significant amount of land there. Yeah. And we see something like that almost every year. Mm-hmm. Too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's, like I said, we always say there's simple things that people can do. And one of those is definitely getting a burn permit yes. from your uh, local fire department or state organization. But yeah, some of them are the simplest things that can be done that people don't really think about. And so that's part of what BLM does is just like I said, education is always that important thing. Right. And we don't always like to go into fire restrictions, but there are reasons yeah. we do. And yes. reasons why people should get per- burn permits and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, fire restrictions are an interesting um, topic just because, uh, you know, with the conditions that we have now, that it seems like in some areas, especially like in the Southwest, it's, it's almost year round that 
you would need fire restrictions. And so um, those are things that we're thinking of as, as the climate is changing is like, how do we, how do we think about the fire restrictions and seasonality of those kinds of things? And maybe we need to be thinking about restricting certain uses almost year round in some areas. And uh, so those are some of the conversations that we're having related to, you know, the changing climate and the lengthening of the fire season. These fuels are now available to burn a lot longer than they used to be. Well, that leads nicely into the next question <laughs> is what do you see as challenges and what do we face in fuels management for the future? Yeah, I'll talk a little bit about the Great Basin. Uh, that's probably like the stickiest challenge that that's one that keeps me up at night. Um, <laughs> you know, we know that, you know, the Great Basin has a lot of this high value sagebrush habitat and it is the home of the sage grouse. Um, which is kind of one of those indicator species in that ecosystem. And we also know that there's been a lot of ecological change in the system in terms of cheatgrass that came from Asia a long time ago that is becoming, um, it, can, it can morph and, um, and establish a lot of different um, elevation, elevational ranges and moisture regimes but it tends to really like the Great Basin um, and can get really well established here. And so the first thing that'll happen is it'll start to get established in that native uh, sagebrush and grass system. And then a fire will come through and then the cheatgrass goes bananas and it takes over and it outcompetes all that native vegetation. And then we're kind of left with kind of a monoculture of cheatgrass. And why that keeps me up at night is <laughs> that monoculture of cheatgrass is super flammable. It it can carry fire um, with 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 minimal winds. Um, it's not that you know relatively. It's not that hard to suppress, but it can move so fast, and and it's also cause for fire fires that are way more flammable um, on the shoulder seasons, meaning times that we would, weren't didn't used to see wildfires taking off and and being real active and getting very large. And these, these fires can move just huge amount of, of uh, space over a short amount of time. And, I'm, you know, I'm thinking of the fire in Nevada um, several years ago. I mean, these, these are fires that will burn 100,000, 200,000, 300,000, uh, you know, even 500,000 acres in, in just several days. Um, and that doesn't happen in a forest. <laughs> so right. um, not, with, not, not with that short a time frame. Um, so, yeah, these fires are a little easier to suppress, but they cause so much ecological damage because it, when those fires burn in areas that have just a little bit of cheatgrass even, well, after that fire, the cheatgrass really becomes, um, it, it, it maintains that um, establishment. Uh, it, 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 it maintains itself on that area. And so the next wildfire that comes through is just a little bit bigger and just a little bit bigger. And then you kind of have lost the native seed component in those areas. And then we're kind of left with this, um, just this, just, just as far as the eye can see, is just cheatgrass. So that is not good habitat for any animal. Um, so we, uh, and, and then we are trying to institute some effective practices to um, get rid of the cheatgrass and reestablish the natives. But with climate change, it becomes more questionable whether how successful we can be at doing that. It really depends on kind of the moisture that follows that, that fire or the moisture associated with that seeding um, to help establish the natives. And so um, this is an area that, you know, we're, we've been paying attention to for a while. And I, I think it's an area that we're going to continue to 
to be really important and try and develop some solutions. But um, and so fuel breaks are one of those solutions. Um, is really to, I hate to say it, but to fragment the landscape, which is not necessarily great for wildlife, but these are these are areas that aren't great for wildlife anyway. And so we can sort of fragment the landscape, try and reduce the wildfire size, and then start to restore it in chunks. And um, some people have been thinking about this in terms of defend the core and grow the core, and the core being that native um, ecosystem. And so we really need to focus on defending those areas and restoring those areas kind of in a, um, in a geographic way that can kind of um, perpetuate itself. You know, just if you've got an area of good natives, then you just want to keep doing work around the edges and just keep growing and growing and growing um, that, those native um, plants and those native landscapes. And then we need to protect those investments through other kinds of fuel treatments. So when the next wildfire comes through, it'll, it won't burn all that investment. So those are the things that we're working on and trying to figure out the best way to do that. Yeah. That's never an easy, <laughs> never an easy process. And I know no. people talk about grazing too, but you can only graze. I mean, cheatgrass, it dry, grows and dries so fast. Mm-hmm. There's only a short period of time that you can actually probably graze that to be effective too. Yeah, I'm not an expert in grazing, yeah, but I know, um, <laughs> I know that it, you know, it, it's it's a tool, but it's yeah. not probably viable over. Um, I mean, it, it's good probably for some small focused areas, or maybe not small, but just for some focused areas. But it it's not the answer for sure. And then there's a lot of controversy with grazing, right. so um, obviously we, you know, are concerned. We want to make sure that the work that we're doing, um, you know, is effective, and uh, just trying to get stuff trying to get our work done on the ground to reduce reduce this risk. I like how you said defend the core and restore the core. Like yeah. I think that's that's an important phrase and I liked that. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's starting to um, get a hold in some circles and um, had a couple conversations the past few days about defending and growing the core and um, it's it's certainly something like the Idaho governor has worked on and um, something that we're working on with NRCS to try and help identify those key areas where we can uh, fo- prioritize uh, con- conserving those key areas as well as kind of growing those key areas and, and helping letting that be kind of a priority on the landscape is rather than just kind of random acts of ecosystem kindness, you know, kind <laughs> right. of focusing on those intact landscapes and then growing those intact landscapes. And then when we do that and are, are successful at reducing the cheatgrass, then we have are able to promote wildfire resiliency. And so when a wildfire comes through, it has, it exhibits more of a typical fire behavior, um, you know, typical seasonality, that sort of thing, which is better for everybody, um, better for communities that are nearby, better for firefighters that are working in those fires. Um, so anyway, that, so that's really the, what one of the other things that we're trying to do is, is restore that wildfire resiliency across the landscape. So there's a little bit of hope out there with the bit of core yeah build on yeah there yeah and and there i mean even though it kind of does look like when you're driving on the interstate it does sort of look like like it's just cheatgrass for as far as i can see well there are some pockets in there um and obviously um those are the areas that i don't know if we want to you know you kind of have to pick the right scale and size but those are the kinds of areas that we're looking for to kind of get a toehold in and continue to use that as a as a, a starting point for um, growing that native um, landscape. 
And another thing you, you mentioned was uh, sage-grouse being an indicator species. What does that mean? So, and what I mean by that, um, I'm not a wildlife biologist either. So, <laughs> so in in a in fire ecology terms, yes. from and in, in Jolie's terms, it's um, it's a species that uh, we track, we monitor because it's hunted. Uh, so we've got data about that species. Um, we know that it, their populations are declining, and there's a wide variety of reasons for it. Uh, one of those reasons is is this fire and cheatgrass cycle. Um, and there's other reasons. And it, and kind of the health of that species tends to indicate the health of a lot of other species in that ecosystem. So that's why I called it an indicator species. It's kind of a, a bellwether or um, it, it, it tells us when those, num- when those populations are declining, it kind of tells us something about the ecosystem and the habitat that they live in that, uh, that where other species that aren't tracked aren't as charismatic, not that sage-grouse are terribly charismatic, but compared to um, other kinds of species in there, um, the, the sage-grouse are something that we, they're kind of big birds, so you can kind of count them and monitor them, and it kind of gives us a sense of the health of that system. Mm-hmm. And those numbers are declining, and um, I know that there's a lot of folks that are interested in, um, in those population studies and trying to help uh, promote uh, the whole ecosystem and knowing that, you know, if those species are declining and having trouble, then there's probably a whole lot of other species that are also um, in trouble. Okay. Yeah, you mentioned like 350, and so that's so much. And it's not just the animals. Um, Carrie did a story on uh, the crust that's out there, too. Yeah. So it's just, you know, where you step or the fire. So mm-hmm. the impacts aren't just to animals and things. It's also crusts and things that you don't even think about that's out there. Right, right. Yeah, and like... I, I don't know, but like little, I know that they have um, the other cute species that are living in there. These really me rabbits, yeah, the little pygmy rabbits. rabbits, and um, those are also cute, but they're um, they're not tracked, yeah. and so um, you know those. That's another kind of species that's in trouble, and it's because this whole ecosystem is in trouble, and and climate change is worrisome because it's predicted to, you know, the the moisture regime is predicted to change, which will make uh, probably wildfires um, more active or more prevalent, and then make our post-fire recovery efforts um, more challenging. All right. So in closing, what what do you think, um, and when we kind of talked about this too, but how can people help? Yeah. So <laughs> I think just, you know, first off, just thinking about when you're out there on the landscape, um, don't start any fires. <laughs> could could what I'm doing could it start a fire? Yeah, think, think um, twice yes. before yeah. you strike. Uh huh. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So thinking twice. Um, I think other things people uh, can do is um, you know is 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 protecting their home and um, trying to reduce the risk on their private lands or their you know the lands where they um, you know are recreating and and working in. Obviously, BLM works a lot with ranchers um, to help um, educate and and ranchers are a great resource I don't know I can't remember if Grant talked about the rangeland fire protection oh. association mm-hmm. ranchers but you know ranchers are sometimes the first people out on these to see to notice a fire to report a fire and then if they are equipped properly they can help um, help suppress the fire and so uh, working with ranchers, and they also obviously have a vested interest in the lands right. and, and the health of these lands. And so I think, um, 
you know, in terms of what other people um, can do is just, you know, educating yourself about these lands and about how critical and important they are and supporting the work that the BLM does to help reduce fire risk across 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 all these um, lands on BLM and um, other federal agencies and private lands. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Like you said, it takes everybody like one little small piece and I think we can all help. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we BLM likes to work with our partners to get all this done, and um, we can't do it without the public. And um, we're here to um, help reduce this all these catastrophic wildfire losses. And that's kind of this is just one piece of it. All right, thank you, Jolie. Do you have anything else to add that we didn't cover? I mean, I'm sure there's a lot, but yeah, there is a lot. But no, this was great. Thank you very much. Yeah, well, it's great having you here, and uh, yeah, it's so important. Our ecosystem is so important, and people don't understand that there is good fire, but there's also bad fire, and there's definitely a difference between the two, and, yes. and we, we need to do a better job in educating people on that, too, as well, um, and, and so it, it does matter. <laughs> yeah, it does. It's important, yeah. And there are so many people think, oh, BLM is fighting fire, there's, but there's so many other wonderful um programs that are out there too and Julie talked about a bunch of them and RFPA too as well so I mean we'll get more into those in future podcasts but yeah the BLM is so much more than just the wildland fire side yes yes well yes thank you for joining us and for our second episode of wildfire batters and taking the time to talk about your program and why it's so important to wildland fire management we appreciate your leadership and all you do in fuels management program across the country to better our our landscapes and better manage the fuels we have to mitigate the de- devastating fires. And it's, it's a big task, but um, I think if we all continue to work together and with this additional funding, hopefully we'll see more progress in the future. So appreciate all the work you and and having your sleepless nights because you obviously you care. <laughs> yeah, there are some sleepless nights. So. <laughs> And so if you guys have um, any uh, questions, comments, or even suggestions on different uh, topics for our podcast, please go ahead and email them to us. You can email them at blm underscore fa underscore nifc underscore comments at blm.gov and use Wildfire Matter podcast in the subject line. To learn more about NIFC or the BLM, visit our webpage at www.nifc.gov and follow us at BLM Fire on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And thank you all for listening. Please join us next time when we spark a conversation with one of our public affairs specialists to talk about NIFC and in depth and what is NIFC. Yeah, we better be good. That's our boss. Until, Until then, then, stay safe and be wildfire aware. aware.